From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about American universities in the 60s. Was that a golden age destroyed by student radicals who were protesting the war in Vietnam and racism in America? For some answers, we'll turn to historian Ellen Schrecker. But first, the paralysis and frustrations of politics in Congress lead us to turn away from Washington today and look at the states. For that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. That's coming up in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What can the Democrats do when they control a state government like California? The Democrats in California today are taking up dramatic changes in healthcare. For that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He writes frequently for The Nation. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. And his books include The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha, welcome back. John, how are you? It's good to be on the show again. Well, please explain Governor Gavin Newsom's big new budget proposal on health care. So it's a big budget, full stop. Um, California is more flush with cash than it's ever been, I think. Uh, certainly more flush than it's been in any time in the recent past. So the budget is $286 billion. That, that's more than the budgets of most national economies. It's a huge budget. And one of the most important proposals is a plan to plug one of the gaps in healthcare coverage. Because for years and years, activists have recognized that despite covered California, despite the expansion of Medicaid, despite the Affordable Care Act, the one group that is left out of all of that is undocumented immigrants. And so California's done a really, really good job of lowering the number of uninsured. It went from about 20% just over a decade ago to about 7 or 8% today. But that last 7 or 8% is disproportionately made up of undocumented immigrants. So a few years back, California expanded Medi-Cal, the state program, to cover undocumented children and youth up to the age of 26. And then last year it expanded it to include older adults. It's now plugging that gap further. So what it's now doing is basically expanding Medi-Cal to include most undocumented adults full stop. And it brings in at a, at a stroke, many, many hundreds of thousands of people into the insurance system. It costs $2.2 billion. It's a really significant step towards some version of universal health care in California. And there's a lot more in the governor's budget proposal that shows what Democrats can do when they hold a supermajority in the legislature and the governor's position in a wealthy state. That's right. I mean, California has a lot of money and a lot of political ambition at the moment. And it's looking east to Washington, D.C., and it's seeing stalemate. And it saw stalemate under Trump. It's seeing stalemate again under Biden. And California has the resources to go its own way. And it's doing that to a large extent. So in that budget, when it comes to health care, for example, you're seeing increased subsidies 
for low-income residents who qualify for insurance through the covered California system. You're seeing um, more subsidies to bring in more children into Medicaid or to bring disabled people into the Medicaid system. You're seeing a series of subsidies in the healthcare system. They are universal healthcare. It's, it's something different, but you're seeing a series of subsidies that are trying to plug the gaps that have been left by this sort of patchwork system that the Affordable Care Act created. Um, the thing about the budget is it is really ambitious on a host of things. It's ambitious on the environment. It's ambitious on housing. It's ambitious on mitigating against wildfires. There's a whole bunch of things where because California has tens of billions of dollars of budget surplus, it's now really moving at a fast pace to expand its social safety net and its vision of the social contract. I find it completely fascinating. And let's also mention uh, expanding mental health services and diagnostics, uh, especially important on the national scene, protecting reproductive health, making it possible for people in other states to make it easier to come to California to get abortions, uh, and homelessness, very big issue where I live in Los Angeles. Yeah, homelessness is a big issue everywhere. I mean, you live in Los Angeles, and so you know you, you you've seen these huge encampments that have sprung up pretty much everywhere. You see them in the freeway underpasses, you see them on parks, you see them by rivers, and so on. Um, I live in Sacramento, and that's nearly four hundred miles away from you, but it's the same thing that there is this extraordinary crisis of housing, and that's the single biggest failure of modern day California. You, you can't turn a blind eye to it. It's, it's a failure that's to do with the cost of housing. It's to do with zoning. It's to do with a lack of mental health services. It's also to do with its prison system because California over-incarcerated for decades and decades. And I was writing about that when I was a young journalist in the um, late 90s and early 2000s. And it was always clear to anyone who was paying attention that at the back end of mass incarceration, you'd have tens of thousands of people coming out of prison and facing all of the social obstacles, all of the hurdles to reintegration that we put in place. So there are restrictions on what kinds of jobs ex-prisoners can get. There are restrictions on where they can live if they've been convicted of certain offences. There are restrictions on what kind of social benefits they can access. If they were convicted of drug crimes, there are loads of federal restrictions on access to housing benefits, access to um, medical benefits, and so on. Um, so one of the consequences of mass incarceration is mass homelessness at the back end. And so if you're going to deal with homelessness, you can't just throw money at it. You've also got to throw services at it. So when you were talking about mental health services, we turned our prisons into modern day mental health systems. There's the single biggest distributor of mental health services in the state is Los Angeles County Jail. Single biggest in Illinois is Cook County. Single busy, biggest in New York is Rikers and so on. We made a disastrous decision as a society a generation ago to use our prisons as first responders for our mental health crises. And it didn't work then, doesn't work now. And so now California is recognizing at the back end of all that, that actually we have to build up things like mental health services again. And so this budget does that. Um, so again, you know, whether we're talking about healthcare, whether we're talking about mental health care, whether we're talking about housing, this is a big, bold, ambitious budget, and it's going to have an impact not just for the next few months. It could reshape California's social compact for years and years to come. And there's a second healthcare proposal that the legislature has taken up that's much more sweeping than the governor's proposal. He's proposed to expand coverage for the undocumented 
This other bill would create universal health insurance for everyone provided by the state, single-payer health care in a single state. It would make California the first state in the nation to adopt a unified government-funded approach to health care under which the state would guarantee every resident of California, not just people below the federal poverty line, not just young people, not just elderly people, every resident of California would get not just medical care, but also dental, vision, and long-term care, regardless of age, employment, income level, marital status, or immigration status. I mean, you can only say, wow. It would yeah. cost something. The cost is tremendous, $222 billion, one estimate. Huge amount of money. But as we've said, the economy of the state of California is a huge economy. We have... Uh, uh, something like a $3 trillion gross state product as of 2020. If California were a sovereign nation, I look this up, it would rank as the world's fifth largest economy, bigger than the United Kingdom, just behind Germany. And as we know, for the last couple of years, the rich have gotten even richer, partly because of the pandemic, especially here in California, where there are so many rich and super rich, and because the state also has a progressive income tax, the state has been generating these huge surpluses that you mentioned, 30 or $40 billion this year. So, so single payer is hugely expensive, but California is hugely wealth, wealthy and has a big progressive income tax. What do you think is the future of single payer in California? The bill you're talking about is Ash Calra's bill. It's AB 1400. And you talked about a $220 billion estimate. There are other estimates that range up to 400 billion. So it's got this eye popping price tag. Um, you, you, we need to step back a little bit from that price tag. It's not that suddenly Californians and the California economy would be spending $400 billion a year more on healthcare. We're already spending that. That money is just spent at the moment by private individuals buying healthcare, or most often by employers paying for the healthcare for their employees and their family members. And that doesn't come cheap. If you're if you're going to um, give good health insurance to a family of four, that employer is probably putting down somewhere in the region of twenty thousand, maybe a little bit more than twenty thousand dollars per year. So what Calra's bill does is it basically says, look, we have this patchwork thing. We have the all of the state-funded ones, which go under Medi-Cal or the VA. We have Covered California, which is the series of subsidies for people who buy in the private market. We have all these other laws that are going to cover the undocumented or some of the undocumented. Then we have employers who are buying insurance for all these other people. And Calvary's bill basically says, you know what? There are too many middlemen involved in this process. Let's centralize it. Let's bring in the money so that there's funding available at the state level and let's do it as a one size fits all single payer system now look it's politically in many ways a third rail still and newsom knows that newsom campaigned on single payer but as soon as he got into office he very sort of quickly backpedaled away from it it's very very difficult to sell the idea of more than doubling the california state budget i mentioned earlier the california state budget is 286 billion dollars so calra's proposal basically says California is going to be responsible for more than double that amount of money, and you're going to have to trust us to distribute it wisely in the distribution of healthcare. Now, it could work. It worked, you know, with limits in the UK. I mean, there's obviously problems with wait lists, but that's to do with underfunding. Um, many, many, many wealthy economies around the world have universal single payer single payer healthcare systems. Canada has it to our north. 
It's a fairer system. It's a far, far more egalitarian system. And it gets rid of a whole bunch of middlemen and all of the profit motive that goes with that. So it's a sensible proposal because the price is so, you know, on the surface seems so large. Politically, I find it very hard to see how we get there. I think it's much more likely that we get towards universal healthcare through these series of smaller scale patches like covering the undocumented that get us up to 95%, 96%, 97%. You can get very, very close to having everybody covered in the state with a series of fixes to the existing system. And I think that's probably where we're heading at the moment. And remind us how we got to the point where Democrats have enough political power in California that they can even consider providing universal health care. What's the political history here? You know, the political history is really interesting because we think of California today in 2022 as this, you know, bedrock blue state. And my students, I teach at UC Davis, I teach journalism, and my students also tend to think of California as a sort of immutably blue creation. And you only have to go back less than 20 years to get a very, very different California. So where did California's Democratic supermajority come from? The real impetus came from a series of very, very harsh anti-immigration policies in the mid-1990s that were pushed by Governor Pete Wilson, a Republican governor, and pushed by the legislature, and also adopted in a series of initiatives by California's voters. And what that did was it triggered a tremendous political backlash amongst immigrant voters, amongst non-white voters, amongst young voters, and it led to this unprecedented organizing effort. And so from the mid-90s through to the early 2000s, more and more people were brought into California politics, people who'd been there in the past but hadn't been voting or hadn't been paying attention or didn't think it mattered or didn't think they could change things. And over time, these organizing efforts completely reshaped and reimagined what California politics could be. So by the time you get to the early 2000s, California starts trending blue. By the time you get to 2010, California is a blue wall. By the time you get to 2016, when Donald Trump's elected nationally, not only is California a blue wall, but every single major city in California, including traditionally conservative cities like Fresno, start electing Democratic mayors. And so you have this complete sort of irrelevance of the state Republican Party. It's wedded to these very harsh anti-immigrant politics. It's wedded to this very harsh conservative politics coming from Donald Trump. And that's not where the modern California electorate is. And so that's why California has a Democratic supermajority. And that's why you can have a situation in 2022 where nothing's getting done federally. You have people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema blocking everything progressive. Of course, the Republicans are also blocking everything progressive, but we expect that. Meanwhile, in California, you've got legislatures basically going their own way. And you said we're the fifth largest economy in the world at this point. That's important. It gives California tremendous leeway to say, you know what? You're really messing this up at a federal level. We can do better at the state level. And it's creating a sort of regional superpower. So you have California but then you also have states like Oregon and Washington, which in many ways emulate California's politics, certainly on the environment, but also on healthcare, um, criminal justice, various other things. So you're starting to see this sort of regional creation of blue politics that's basically saying, you know what, the West is going to go one way, whatever the federal government does or doesn't do. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote about California expanding healthcare to the undocumented for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Sasha. This was great.
Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. American universities in the 60s. Was that a golden age destroyed by student radicals protesting the war in Vietnam and racism in America? For some answers, we turn to Ellen Schrecker. She's been our leading historian of McCarthyism for decades. Her books include No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism and the Universities. She taught American history for years at Yeshiva University. Now she's got a new book out. It's called The Lost Promise. Ellen Schrecker, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Well, let's acknowledge at the outset that this is a personal story for both of us. We're both part of the student movements of the 60s. Then we both spent our lives teaching in universities. So this is our life, pretty much. Yes. And this is a period when universities are expanding enormously, doubling and tripling in enrollments. Faculties are expanding even more. Graduate students are really expanding. And the schools are being transformed from elite to popular institutions. Uh, they're sort of the quintessential institution of Cold War liberalism in a way, in that there's a kind of sense that somehow they're going to solve Americans, America's problems and restore social mobility and carry out wonderful research and save the world. In the meantime, what is happening is that a whole generation of graduate students, you're part of it, I'm part of it, uh, are being uh, lured into the academy because the powers that be are afraid that there aren't gonna be enough faculty members for the baby boomers who are going to swarm onto the campus. So they literally threw money at us. Uh, there was prestige, there was intellectual excitement, and it was all completely affordable. Plus, there were jobs all over. And uh, even people who were, this was something that really surprised me in my research, uh, even people who were fired for political reasons could get other jobs in uh, the university. That had not happened in the 50s. So you say this is a story of decline, but Today, doesn't every parent still want their kids to go to college? Isn't that still the American dream? Aren't American universities still ranked number one in the world? I, I, you know, I live in LA. I looked up some statistics for my neighborhood. UCLA had 140,000 applicants for its first year class last year. My own campus, UC Irvine, just a kind of a middle level middle, uh, had 100,000 applicants last year. It's kind of mind-boggling. Okay, this is because it's an essential institution. You need that bloody credential to get a job, to stay in the middle class, to get into the middle class. It's not because they love their colleges. What we're talking about is a institution that's been hollowed out completely since the 1960s. 75% uh, 
of all the instruction that is offered on American campuses are taught by what are called contingent faculty members. These are people who are part-timers, who often have to commute to teach uh, a number of courses on a number of campuses because they're only making $3,000 a course. They have to exist on food stamps. These, uh, their jobs are not secure. Um, so the quality of the instruction is declining for these structural reasons. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about decline. The first big topic of any discussion of the university in the 60s, of course, is student activism. And really the great thing about your book is that it's not about the students. As you say, it's about the faculty. We've got a million books about SDS and what happened on different campuses. I, I can't forget hearing liberal sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset giving a talk to grad students in 1966, where he said he was supposed to talk about his research. And he told us that he was studying, quote, why students are revolting. You know, heh heh. Uh, he said, and he had a theory. Uh, he said they revolted at Berkeley, uh, where he had taught before he left and came to Harvard, because they were neglected in the multiversity. But in elite colleges, this was his theory in 1966, elite colleges are centered on, on students, and it would never happen uh, at elite colleges. But then, of course, two years later, Columbia revolted. The year after that, Harvard revolted. Uh, but then he came up with a new theory. He said that privileged kids had the luxury of revolting, but it would never happen to working class kids at state colleges. The Ooh. next year, San Francisco State revolted. He quit his job at Harvard. He went to the Hoover Institution. The question that many faculties had to face was the anti-war movement's critique of ROTC on campus. Professors wanted to be able to say, this is a problem in the White House, in Congress. This is not a problem for us. But the students came up with the strategy of focusing on what they call, what we called university complicity in the war. Most campuses, especially state campus, state university campuses, had ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Program, where students got course credit for studying how to be military officers. And then when they graduated, they were sent to Vietnam as lieutenants where they led combat units. A lot of them got killed. So there was a direct link between training soldiers to go to Vietnam and giving them university credit for what were university courses. This really was a pressing issue on many campuses the military relied very heavily on ROTC to staff its junior officer corps. And this was only one kind of protest that the students had against what their schools were doing. I assume, were you uh, at Princeton when they took over the IDA? I was already graduated. I had already graduated. What was IDA? The what was it called? Institute for Defense Analyses. It was a very high level body within the Pentagon that recruited the superstars of physics to solve the problems of their weapons. And it was only housed at, I think, a dozen very, very elite universities, MIT, uh, Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, and uh, students, students um, also anti-war students very early on began to protest against the 
uh, position of this uh, war machine on the campus. They also protested against uh, the university allowing um, uh, military industries, especially Dow Chemical, which made uh, napalm, which was a sort of uh, goo that was dropped from helicopters and it burned people to death. Wonderful stuff. And um, it had been invented at Harvard, by the way. Uh, but uh, anyhow, there was this uh, one form of protest besides the opposition to ROTC was against uh, the school's uh, allowing recruiters from the industry, uh, defense industries onto the campus. I want to talk about the conservative critique of all this. Conservatives, of course, have been complaining about liberals on the faculty going back to the 50s. Uh, that's where William Buckley got his start, God and Man at Yale. But in the 60s, the complaint turned to the presence of radicals and, and eventually Marxists uh, running the college campuses. How ubiquitous were radicals and Marxists really on college and university faculties in the 60s? Well, they certainly weren't running the schools, that's for sure. The schools were being run mainly the administration and the overwhelming bulk of the faculty were liberals of a sort, liberals and moderates. Uh, certainly faculty members were not political activists by any manner of means. There were a few who were. They got hassled quite a bit. Some even were fired. But with only a few exceptions, they were able to get other jobs. But uh, there weren't a lot of um, radicals. Seymour Martin Lipset, who is the authority because he got tons of money from the Carnegie Foundation to run surveys, uh, sort of says it's less than 10% of the faculty, probably the group that was probably most. So let's uh, talk a little bit about that 10%. The left on campus, especially we're talking here about the faculty and, and some of the grad students wasn't just protesting, they were also doing research and, and, and writing. And uh, one of the most uh, interesting parts of your book, The Lost Promise, is about the work of radical scholars and the organizations of radical scholars. What do you think were their most significant achievements? I'm thinking here about the organizations of radical faculty members, ERPI, the Union of Radical Political Economists, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, Science for the People, and of course, our organization, Marho, the Radical Historians Organization, they did some pretty significant work. CCAS, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, they began to critique their own field. And that was happening in many disciplines, including very important work in the field of literature of expanding the canon. You know, people talk about Black studies. Well, Black studies, actually, there was a lot of Black studies. It was all at HBCUs. People didn't even know about it. And of course, Black scholars weren't hired by majority white schools, of course. But uh, what was happening was people are discovering new writers, publishing uh, new sources in a number of fields, and of course, developing whole new fields especially women's uh, studies and the social history of science. Another uh, one of the most important parts of your book is the attention you pay to Southern colleges and universities, which we don't hear much about. And you say there's a reason for that. They had a much higher level of repression 
tell us a little bit about what was going on in the South. Well, the South, of course, was an area of the country that was run by white supremacists, period. And even black colleges were run by whites once you got high enough, especially if they're public schools. And they have a student body that is uh, becoming increasingly more radicalized by the 60s, of course. And they are beginning to make demands on their colleges, not necessarily against ROTC or something like that, but for Black studies. Apparently, uh, there had been Black studies taught, Black history especially, at these segregated schools up until about the 40s or 50s. Then it's dropped because the schools are trying to upgrade themselves to be like the white schools. Oh, man. So they stop teaching Black history, if you can believe it. But there are enough um, Black uh, scholars who are still pushing, you know, still infusing their students with a sense of, uh, reality and what the history of African-Americans has been. So they're becoming radicalized that way. And um, what we see is an enormous amount of repression and repression against white faculty members who are also trying to sort of make statements about, well, you know, we, we should be allowed to talk about uh, race and things like that. So the hollowing out of the university that you talked about that that has created this crisis of so much of the teaching is done by uh, temporary lecturers. This really began in the seventies with a crisis of a public a funding for public universities. Yeah. Tuition at the University of California was free for residents in nineteen sixty eight, but uh, starting in the seventies, the the state contribution to the university budget fell steadily until it was what it is today. Something like 10% of the budget of the University of California comes from taxpayers' funds in the state legislature. All the rest comes from either student tuition, government grants, or philanthropists. So, uh, you know, one of the big questions that your book poses is, how can we explain this disaster? To what extent was this the result of conservative critique of the radicals in the university. There was also a huge economic recession in the mid 70s. And then there was the rise of this idea that, well, college helps you earn money and therefore uh, you should pay for it. How do you separate these out? Well, you don't separate them out. <laughs> it's all part of a um, sort of drive for austerity, a imposition of a neoliberal political culture uh, that comes in in the 1970s. And you probably know, have heard of the Powell Memo. Okay. This is a very significant document. Back in the early 70s, the future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell was a very high-powered lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. He had been president of the American Bar Association. He was a big-time lawyer, but he was also a raging conservative. And he is asked by his friend, 
who is about to become the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce's Education Committee. And what Powell writes is a 34-page document intended for big businessmen who are concerned about the fact that students coming off the campus have been brainwashed by their liberal professors and we have to do something to counter it. Now, he's also a uh, libertarian who believes that more and more things should be done by the market and the government should just get out of almost everything except police and military, I think. And so what you're getting is a prescription for a war on the liberal university that come, it's written in 1971. And he calls not only for throwing out the radical professors, that goes without saying, but also to construct a kind of counter institution uh, to take over American political culture. Uh, but it's this can, uh, attack on the university, a drive to privatize it as much as possible, to bring in a more pro-business pro atmosphere on the campus. They start uh, right-wing think tanks, they support graduate students, they create programs. This is the all of a lot of this is being funded by the Koch Foundation. Uh, and so we're getting an attack, a very clever attack on academic expertise. Uh, these are the people who are funding climate deniers. These are the people who are funding the uh, provocateurs like who come onto the campus and, and just make racist comments to provoke people, to get people upset. And then the university can't deal with it and they clamp down. And then all of a sudden, guess who's repressing freedom of speech? It's the left. Well, not quite. Anyhow, this is uh, what has begun with a pushback, a backlash against the 60s. And of course, the an important player in this whole thing is Ronald Reagan. Ellen Schrecker's new book is The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s. Ellen, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. 
by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.